Y'all uh, turn with me to Micah chapter 5, book of Micah chapter 5. And what I tell uh, the gang that gets together with me on Wednesday nights as we study the Word together, there's no shame in looking at the table of contents, all right? If you don't know where Micah is, it's right there front of the book. It tells you where all the books of the Bible are. You can find them. Nobody's going to judge you, this, this, I promise. So, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Now, some of you may not know this, but the reason why the internet was invented was so that we could watch videos about cats. Did you know that? And the best cat videos there are 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 the cats versus cucumbers video. And I don't know if you've seen this. I've got a real quick one I want to show you. that not the greatest thing ever? So apparently there's this whole line. I, I say apparently, the truth is I have watched these, not on church time, but I've watched these and yeah, it's, it's pretty hard to stop. Um, by the way, don't look it up on your smartphone now. God is watching. But afterwards, <laughs> check it out because these cat owners put a cucumber behind their cat. The cat turns, sees the cucumber, freaks out. We've tried it with our cat. He's too evil. He won't freak out for us. But um, so cat experts, which is a sad and lonely group, I would assume, um, cat experts say that it's not that there's anything inherently scary about a cucumber. It could be anything. You could put a banana there. You could put a, a, you know, a framed picture of yourself. It doesn't matter. It's just if you put something near a cat that it's not expecting. You know, it, it turns, it eats and it turns back around, and there's something that wasn't there before, that's what scares the cat. Because cats don't like new things. Cats don't like things to change. They want everything to stay the same. They want everything to stay in its place. Which sounds a lot like us, actually. I've been pastor here. It'll be two years in March. And what I've learned is almost every one of you, unless you're pretty new, you have your place in this church. You have a pew you like to sit in, right? You're always in the same spot, and I would point some of you out right now, but you might not come back. So that's true of every church I've ever been a part of. People always sit in the same spot. In fact, the church I pastored before this one, we, we had to do a renovation of our sanctuary. And so for about a month, we were, we were out of the sanctuary entirely. We worshiped in the gym. So every Sunday, we'd have to set up all these hundreds of chairs in the gym and worship there. And the first Sunday we did that, I'm walking in, and a woman met me at the door, a member of the church, and she said, Pastor, I just want to know where my seat is. And I laughed, and I said, well, that's a good one. She wasn't joking. She really wanted to know, where is my pew? Because I'm used to looking at you from a certain angle. I'm used to sitting around the same people. I don't want to miss. I don't want something new. I don't want a new experience. I like my pew, and I don't want someone else sitting in it. You know, I've always thought, wouldn't it be great if we did an emphasis where every Sunday we challenged people to sit in some new place, and they'd meet new people, they'd get new perspectives, I love that idea, but I also love my job. So I haven't suggested that just yet. But if this was just about cats and cucumbers and church pews, if this was just a matter of, you know, a guy doesn't like it when his wife gets her hair cut because he likes it long and she cut it short, if it was just about older people who get upset because their grandkids get tattoos or or young people who get upset because their iPhone updated overnight and they didn't want it to, that wouldn't be worth a sermon. 
But I'm here to tell you that this attitude that says everything needs to stay the same, everything needs to stay the way I like it, is a problem for us. And it can actually get in the way of us doing the will of God and living out the life that God has planned for us. And I'm not just making that up. It's, it's right here in the Word of God. Let me show you something. Because here's the thing about God. God is the same. God will never change. He is the same today, yesterday, today, and forever. The same God that's here with us today was the same God that was talking to Moses thousands of years ago. The same God who said, let there be light all those thousands of years ago and brought life into existence. No, God never changes, but God is constantly doing new things. God is constantly doing whatever it takes to win people over and draw people into salvation. And that means He's doing new things on a regular basis. And that means He's always upsetting our expectations. And the more you think you know God and you have Him nailed down, the more surprised you're going to be and disturbed you're going to be when God does something new. Again, I'm not making this up. It's in the Word of God. Isaiah 43 verse 18 says, Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke from chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew, and He said, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. He says that over and over again, and it's His way of saying, listen, you think you know everything because you've read part of the Old Testament. You think you know what I think about money and sex and power and pleasure and, and life and righteousness, but I've got, enough, I've got more teaching that you don't know yet. You've got things still to learn. In John 13, 34, the night before Jesus died, he said, a new command I give you that you love one another. His disciples had been with him three years and they were still learning new things. He says, hey, you never realized until right now how much it means to me that you love each other and treat each other well. And finally, in Romans 12, 2, Paul writes and says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I'm here to tell you, if you can't think of the last time you learned something new, if you can't remember the last time you changed your mind about something and said, I've been wrong and I need to change, then you're not growing anymore. You're stuck in the mud. And you can't do that. You can't stay where you are and go with God. And I know that's a disturbing thought because we like things the way we like them and we just finally got things settled. But God's doing a new thing. And God's never saying still, and you can't stay where you are and go with God. So right now, before we get into the text, I want to challenge you to say a prayer with me. In fact, we're going to stop everything. We're all going to bow our heads and close our eyes, and I'm going to challenge you to pray a prayer that goes something like this. Lord, show me where my thinking is wrong. Show me where I need to change the way I look at the world and the people around me. Show me how I need to change my mind right now, today. Would you do that? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Would you pray something like that? Lord, we don't want to miss what you have to say to us this morning. Let this not be just a time when we, when we just grit our teeth and make it through a sermon so we can get to lunchtime. But Lord, instead, I pray that we would be open to what your Holy Spirit is saying. That Lord, whatever it is in our hearts that needs to change and however we need to change in the way we think and the way we see the world, Lord, I pray that we would hear it and we would respond. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're in this series right now uh, called Star of Wonder. We're, we're looking at the star that led the Magi from Babylon and, or, or Persia, somewhere in the east, all the way to Bethlehem to the, to the house where Jesus, the infant Messiah, was. What, what was it that brought them? I've, I've told you last week, 
read a book by Dr. Colin Nichol, a New Testament scholar. He speculates that it was a comet. The name of the book is The Great Christ Comet. His, his idea is that a comet is the only astronomical phenomenon that actually does the things that the Bible talks about. It actually moves in the sky and, and could do the things that the Bible describes. Whether you believe that or not really isn't important. What we need to understand is that God took men who were doing something the Bible says is evil, essentially sorcery, fortune-telling, astrology, and making a lot of money at doing it. And they abandoned all of that and traveled hundreds of miles to get to a place they didn't know where they were going, they didn't know what they'd find, just so they could worship at the feet of a child and bring him expensive gifts. And that's important. That's important because it, it tells us something about who our God is and, and what's most important to Him. His priority is people and seeing people come home to Him. Now these magi, they knew because they'd seen this, this sign in the sky, they knew because probably they had read, at least studied, at least once they saw this phenomenon, they had studied the prophecies in the Old Testament about the Jewish Messiah they knew that there was a king that was born in Israel. They didn't know where, though. Israel's not a huge nation, but it is a nation. There's a lot of towns, a lot of villages, a lot of homes. You can't just go door to door. So they did the logical thing. They went to Jerusalem, the capital city, and they went to the palace because their logic was, and I think this is commendable, if a king has been born in Israel, the king of the world, the Savior of humanity has been born in Israel, the King of Israel would know about it and would have already been there, would have already worshipped at His feet. So they went to the palace of a man named Herod the Great. Now guess who gave Herod the Great the name Herod the Great? Herod the Great is the answer. Herod was... Uh, he was a client king, which meant that he didn't have actual power. He, the actual people in charge were the Roman Empire, but they allowed Herod to rule Israel for them. Now, Herod was the consummate politician. Let me tell you how skilled a politician he was. If you're into history, this might be interesting. If not, just humor me. It won't last long. So, um, so Caesar Augustus was in charge, right? And then when Caesar Augustus... I'm sorry... Julius Caesar, and then when Julius Caesar died, there were two men vying for power. One was Mark Antony, one was Octavian, the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Well, Herod was a Mark Antony guy. That's who he supported. But Octavian won. Herod was such a skilled politician. He managed to convince Octavian, who later became known as Augustus Caesar. He managed to convince Augustus Caesar, you know what? I've been on your side all along. And Augustus believed him and said, I like you. You can keep on ruling. And so Herod ruled over Judea. He was also not an Israelite. He was from Idumea, which in, in biblical terms in the Old Testament was known as Edom. So he was an Edomite, a descendant of Esau, you might say. Um, and he wanted the Jews to accept him as one of their own. Of course, they never did. But one of the things he did was he spent tons and tons of money and years and years of his life renovating the temple in Jerusalem. And he wanted it to be even larger and grander than the temple of Solomon that had been destroyed 700 years before. And so he, he, he 
poured himself into the renovation of this temple. Work that was still ongoing when Jesus was doing his ministry, and it, didn't, it wasn't completed until after Jesus had ascended into heaven. It, not only that, Herod would get up and read the Scriptures on Jewish holy days, and he would cry conspicuously, big crocodile tears. He wanted everyone to know how moved he was by the Scriptures of Israel. At the same time, Herod was a paranoid, brutal dictator. He had many members of his own family executed because he suspected them of conspiring against him. Josephus, the Jewish historian who lived during that time, said that when Herod's death was approaching, he actually had soldiers round up and arrest several prominent citizens of Jerusalem because he wanted to make sure that on the day that he died, those people were executed so that there would be mourning in Jerusalem instead of celebrating when he died. This is the kind of man we're talking about. So it's no wonder that Matthew and Matthew 2 says that when Herod found out that the child had been born, the Messiah had been born in Israel, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. He should have been excited. He should have been thrilled. This is what the Jews had been looking forward to for centuries. And yet his first thought was, that means trouble for me. Because think about it from Herod's perspective. He had spent his whole life finding, claiming, and holding on to power. And now this star appears in the sky, this strange development in the heavens. Everybody's all worked up. This is a time of messianic expectation. You know, history kind of goes in cycles. There are times when people are more cynical. This was one of those times when people were much more idealistic when they said, hey, we want a hero. Somebody needs to rise up and overthrow this cruel despot Herod and, and, and the even worse people in Rome and, and take charge and lead us back to glory and redeem us as a people. And now this star appears in the sky and gets everybody all stirred up. And then these strangers from the east show up and say that it means, and by the way, they're astrologers, so they should know what they're talking about. It, it means that the Messiah has been born somewhere in our country. Well, Herod wants to keep all of this tamped down. He wants to keep this all secret and down low because if it gets out, the zealots are going to riot and people are going to get excited and there may be even be a revolution. And even if he manages to hold on to power and, and survive the revolution, the Romans may say, hey, that's one uprising too many and we're going to put one of our own in charge instead of you. So he comes up with a plot. I will pretend to worship this Messiah. I will use these magi to find him for me. Unwittingly, they will lead me to his house and therefore I can kill him and remain secure on the throne. And you've got to have some serious things wrong in your head if God has sent His Son into the world and your first thought is, I want to kill Him. If you want to set yourself up against God Almighty, but that's who Herod was. So he called the religious expert. His first move was, these magi have come. They're asking me where the Messiah is born. I don't want to tell them I don't know. So I put them on hold for a while. I called the scribes and the teachers of the law and I asked them, where is the Messiah to be born according to the Word of God? And I can just see these men, these religious men coming into the presence of Herod and shaking their heads and muttering to themselves, a real Jew wouldn't have to ask. But they quote for him from the passage we're looking at this morning. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, 
from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. And they will live securely for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth and he will be our peace. So they say to Herod, Bethlehem. Bethlehem is the place. Bethlehem, by the way, was just about five miles from Jerusalem. Just a short walk. You could do it in a couple of hours. Bethlehem was well known. It was the place where Ruth and Boaz had fallen in love all those many centuries ago. As depicted in the book of Ruth. And then her great, great, her great grandson David was born in that same city. And one day the prophet Samuel came to that town and his father Jesse had to call David in from the shepherd field so Samuel could anoint him as Israel's next king secretly because Saul was still on the throne. Great events had taken place in Bethlehem, but it was still seen as a very small, insignificant city. In fact, when Micah says that Bethlehem is small among the clans of Judah. The term he used doesn't mean small in terms of population or his size, but small in terms of significance. It is an insignificant town. You would never guess the Messiah would be born there. But there it is in Micah 5.2. And I want you to think about something ironic. For centuries, the Jews have looked for a Messiah. The first messianic prophecy in the whole Bible is in Genesis 3. That's how long people have anticipated this hero being born. The religious rulers, they among all people had been studying and predicting this event their whole lives. It was their very career, their calling. And yet salvation has come into the world in their lifetime right now. And not one of them, according to Scripture, not one of them gets on a camel or even sets out and walks the five miles to Bethlehem. Not one. And Herod wants to kill the child. You know why? Because somebody's sitting in my pew, and I don't like it. I want things to stay exactly the same. Messiah sounds great until he actually shows up, and then he upsets my apple cart, and everything has to change. I don't want this. I want things to be the way they are right now. And on the other hand, here come these pagan sorcerers. Again, men who would have been seen as evil in Israel, especially in an earlier era. Men who the Bible talks against, who all through Scripture, whenever they're mentioned, they're seen as evil. But now they've come to worship Israel's Messiah. They've come hundreds of miles. They've left behind lucrative careers. They've brought expensive gifts. And they're there to worship Him. And this sounds ironic and unlikely unless unless you've been paying attention to a particular thread in Scripture that those religious leaders seem to have ignored. Let me point out what I'm talking about. So way back in Genesis 12, we meet a man named Abram. This is the beginning of the Jewish people. Abram is a fairly wealthy businessman in the city of Ur, not even a man who knows the Lord. And God reveals Himself to Abram and his wife Sarah and he gives him the following promise in Genesis 12. He says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and make you a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and those who curse you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And if you know your scripture, you know that Abraham, 25 years later, he's known as Abraham. 
He and his wife, Sarah, give birth to their first child, a child named Isaac. Isaac grows up, marries Rebekah. They have 12 sons. They become the 12 patriarchs of Israel. Okay, I skipped somebody. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has the patriarchs, right? Jacob, Rachel, and Leah. There will be a quiz, so you'll keep... And the Jewish nation is born. Israel, the people of God, are born. And they've always seen themselves as God's chosen people because of what God told Abraham that we just read. The problem is they don't understand what chosen people means. They think it means God is always on our side. God loves us more than all other people. God loves us and hates others. And so they, they see as evidence these things that God has done for them throughout history. The fact that he rescued them from slavery in Egypt. The fact that he fought for them in countless battles where they were outnumbered and overmatched. And yet they won because God was on their side. The fact that he gave them a promised land and he drove out the people who currently live there so they could have it. This land flowing with milk and honey. They just say to themselves, obviously God loves us and doesn't love others. They ignore the whole part about through you, all peoples on earth, will be blessed. They ignore that completely. That God made them not to be just a special people that He loved more than others. No, He made them to be the people through whom He would show the world, I love you all. He meant for them to be the example, the ambassadors, a kingdom of priests, as He called them. People who would represent God on earth so that all nations would be drawn to Yahweh, the God of Israel, and be saved. And some of the prophets would talk about this because the Israelites just couldn't get it wrapped around, get, get their minds wrapped around this concept. Isaiah, for instance, was big on this concept. Isaiah 60, verse 1, in a passage the Magi may have read themselves, says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises above you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and His glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. And, and the reason I think the, the Magi may have read that is they may have seen that and said, hey, we're, we're Gentiles. By the way, the term nations in Hebrew is goyim. It's the same word they use for Gentiles. We, non-Jews, we're goyim in their eyes. The Magi may have read that and said, hey, we're goyim. We're Gentiles. We're drawn to Israel by a great light. That's talking about us. And the reason I think they may have read that passage is what comes a few verses later in verse 6. Verse 6 of Isaiah 60 says, All from Sheba will come bearing gold and incense. And every child who's ever been in Sunday school who's ever been in a, a children's Christmas pageant, knows that the Magi came bearing three gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, where does the myrrh come from? Well, Isaiah 53 talks about how the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, will suffer for the sins of all the other people. And by His wounds, we will be healed. And I don't know this, this is just me speculating, but maybe, maybe the Magi said, hey, this Messiah, this ruler is going to have to give his life. He's going to die someday. And so we need this resin, this expensive resin, myrrh, so he can be embalmed when he dies. Because that's what it was used for. What we know, what we know is the Jews never understood this. Never understood 
what Isaiah was talking about or what God was talking about in Genesis 12. They never embraced this idea of being a light to the nations. In fact, there were some Jews who were just flagrantly racist who would say, the only reason God keeps making more Gentiles is because the fires of hell need more fuel. He's talking about us. And one of those Jews who probably had that very attitude was a guy named Saul of Tarsus. You may have heard of him. One day, years after this story we're studying today, <clears throat> Saul was on his way to Damascus in Syria to arrest followers of Jesus, this child who was born in Bethlehem, because he hated the message of grace that the followers of Jesus preached. And he certainly hated the idea that all nations could come into the family of God. And on the way to Damascus, he met Jesus face to face for the very first time, and his life was transformed. He had this vision of the risen Christ, and suddenly this Saul who hated Gentiles, suddenly he becomes, in the most ironic twist of all, the, the man God uses to bring Gentiles into the family of God. And yet, even though he's going on these missionary journeys, he's now known as Paul, he's going on these missionary journeys and people are, are coming to know Christ in all these cities all across the Middle East and Asia Minor and in modern-day Europe. The early Christians didn't like it. And they had, in Acts 15, they, they had to have a big meeting, a big all-church meeting where they had, sat around and discussed, is it okay for these non-Jews to come into our family and follow our Messiah? Because we don't really like that. Somebody's sitting in our pew, and that's not right. We, we like where we sit, and if all these Gentiles come in, we're going to have to sit somewhere else. So what if we make it really hard for them to come to know Christ? What if we tell them, your men have to be circumcised? That'll teach them. Let's at least make them pretend to be Jewish before they come into the family. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit won that battle, and thank God, the church decided, I guess it's okay for non-Jews to follow our Messiah and receive the blood of Christ. You know, we're no different. We are, if you're a Christian today, we are the chosen people of God. We are God's people on earth. We are His ambassadors. We are his priests on earth. We represent Him. You may not have known you were signing up for that responsibility, but you, you were. Because just like for the Jews, being a part of God's family isn't just a privilege, it's also a responsibility. And that means He doesn't love us more than other people. He doesn't, I want you to hear me now, He doesn't love Baptists any more than He loves Catholics or or Presbyterians, or Methodists, or Charismatics, or Church of Christ. God doesn't love us as Christians any more than He loves Buddhists, or Muslims, or Jews, or Hindus, or atheists, or people who are just too lazy to even think about God. He loves us all. Even those who haven't yet come to know His saving love through Jesus. And there's no room in our hearts and minds for a this is my pew, you sit somewhere else mentality. There's no room in our hearts for a us-against-them kind of mindset that comes so naturally. There's no room in our minds for this is the way I like things. Let's not change them. By the way, I just want to calm you down in case you're, you're running ahead of me and thinking, oh my goodness, he's about to announce that we're going to change everything in our church. We're going to become you know, the, the church of... of 
I don't know, downtown Conroe. We're not, we're not going to be known as First Baptist anymore. I'm not proposing any big changes of anything today except to say this. I don't know what God will do. I just know God doesn't sit still. And so I want to challenge you. At the start of the sermon, I, I, I challenge you to preach and, and say, Lord, I want my thinking to change. I want to give you some examples of some ways I think our thinking needs to change just based on what I see God doing, I think some of us need to understand that while we're very comfortable going to church mostly with people who look like us and dress like us and think like us and talk like us and vote like us, if we're to become the kind of church we are called to be, a disciple-making congregation in the heart of downtown Conroe, basically the only big church that's in the center of the city anymore, a church that by geographical nature alone is called to reach everyone, not just a particular neighborhood, not just a particular group. If we're to be that church, it's going to mean some of those people, whoever those people might be in your mind, are going to start coming here. I don't know when and I don't know how, but I think that's God's plan. And I don't think any of us would say, oh, that's a bad thing. But deep down in our hearts, in the way we think, there's a lot of us who would deep down say, you know, I like things the way they are. I like it where, where, where everybody sort of looks like me and, and where I'm comfortable talking to people and I don't have to, I don't have to put myself on level ground with them, but, but they can stay in their place and I'll stay in my place and we'll all just be happy. Friends, let's not be a stone that's in the way of what God wants to do. Let's not be people who sit around muttering that I, I, I miss the way things used to be, but instead let's be people who rejoice when God does a new thing. And I'll tell you something else. We're sitting here living, most of us live in Conroe, or at least the greater Conroe area, living in the fastest growing city in the United States right now. And I know if you grew up here, that's, that's a disturbing thought, but it's also an exciting thought. Because some of the people who are going to move here and are already moving here are not from our world. They're from other nations. They worship other gods. And you can complain about that. You can feel threatened by that. Or you can say, hallelujah, Lord, you're bringing the mission field to us. Now, which do you think is the more Christ-like option? That doesn't come naturally to most of us. What I'm praying is, what I'm asking you to do is pray that God would change your heart so you would have that missionary mindset of, hallelujah, Lord. It's not just uh, the Harringtons and the Fleetwoods and other foreign missionaries who get to share your gospel with people who don't know the name of Jesus. Now I get to as well. Now my church gets to as well without even leaving town. And, and one more thing, and this ought to hit all of us, because we've all got people who we just don't like. I'm not talking about their race or their anything like that. I'm talking about they just rub us the wrong way. Maybe they've hurt us in the past. Maybe they've earned our distrust. Maybe we just don't like the way they live or the way they talk. Maybe we just find them annoying. We all have those people. Don't look at the person next to you. That's, this is not the time for that. And it's very humbling for me to realize that I may be your person, that you're like, man, I just... <laughs> Don't really care for him, but it's true. My challenge to you is to say, Lord, pray to the Lord. Lord, help me to see them through your eyes.
because you died for them just as you died for me. And they don't have to become my favorite person, but I have to love them. I have to see them through your eyes. I have to be able to treat them in the way that you treat them and you call me to treat them. So my question to you is, salvation has come. God's doing a new thing every single day. Will you be like the people of Jerusalem who say, whatever, I like things the way I have them right now. God can do what he wants to do, but I'm going to stay right here, stuck in the mud, planted in this pew, fits my cheeks perfectly. (laughs) I'm not moving. Or are you going to be like the Magi who said, I see the light and I want to go where the light is? Even better, are you going to be people who say, I am called to take the light with me into my workplace, into my neighborhood? If God calls me to go overseas, I will. If God calls me to reach out to someone who's different, I will. If God brings into my life somebody who it, it, it hurts my comfort zone to reach out to them, I will. Because that's what I'm called to do. That's where the joy is. That's where the Lord is. See, I can't decide for you what you will say. And I'll be honest with you, most churches, most people simply say, I've gone far enough. And that's why churches die. And that's why Christians remain rooted and don't grow. But I can tell you this. If there was ever anyone who was in a comfortable position, a spot that you wouldn't want to change, it was the Son of God, Jesus. He was surrounded by constant angelic adoration. He had perfect righteousness and ultimate power. He had this fulfilling relationship with the Father and the Son. He was part of the Godhead. He needed absolutely nothing. Nothing. Jesus did not come into this world because he was lonely or needed a new experience. He had everything he could possibly have wanted, but he got up from his throne and he came here. He left his comfort zone and entered into our suffering and our stress, and then he went into the most uncomfortable place possible. He went to a rugged cross. He traded adoration for accusation. He gave up privilege for pain. He endured shame so he could be our Savior. He opened the door for us to have life. And you and I owe him everything. And now he stands before us saying, if you save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll save it. So where in your life does this selfish pride, this lazy desire to stay comfortable, to keep everything in its proper place, keep you from doing the will of your Savior? That's the question I want you to wrestle with. If you confess that to him today, You can walk out of this place free. You can walk out of this place a new person. Transformation isn't just for the day you get saved. The exciting thing about following Jesus is transformation is an ongoing process. And the joy you experienced when you entered the waters of baptism or the day you prayed the prayer of salvation or the day you first realized Christ died for you and you were set free, that same joy can be yours on an ongoing basis. And today can be one of those days for many people in this room. And I don't know who they are because I don't know your heart and I don't know your mind. I just know that when you submit to God in any way, you experience freedom and you experience joy. So I'm inviting us to that freedom and joy this morning.